Welcome to CT Church. This message was recorded during our Sunday service. We hope you enjoy this presentation. If you would this morning, go go with me here as we take a closer look at this very old but very, very precious story because it, it, it is certainly the opening chapter of the greatest story ever told. And not just any story, a story of truth. This is not fiction, it's nonfiction. It's absolute truth, the greatest story ever told. So first of all, let's once again consider some of the key elements of this Christmas story. The story begins before the beginning of time as any of us know it. The Bible says that even before the foundations of this world were laid, God planned that His Son would be slain for the sins of mankind. Before any of us existed, God already had the plan in motion. Beginning in the third chapter of Genesis and continuing all the way through the Old Testament, prophecy after prophecy proclaimed that the Messiah was indeed going to come to planet Earth. He would be born, he would live among us, and John 1.29 says the Lamb of God that takes away our sins would be here. But there is this 400-year silence where we don't hear from any of the prophets of God. But finally, after a 400-year silence, that silence is broken when the angels spoke to Mary and Jesus was born. So the story begins to unfold, but certainly not without a lot of complications, right? A lot of rumors and gossips flying around Nazareth about Mary's pregnancy. That was a big deal back then. People got stoned for such activity. Then came the complication of Caesar's decree that everyone had to return home for the census. Mary and Joseph had to travel approximately 85 miles. That doesn't sound like too big a deal these days, does it? But I'll tell you, at that time, that would be like walking well from Nazareth to Bethlehem Uh, They were either walking or riding on a donkey. You always see them on a donkey. It doesn't say that. We don't know that for sure. But it would be like walking from here to the north, far north side of Austin without any type of paved roads. You know, the average person walks about three miles an hour, but that's when they're not nine months pregnant. So if you, could, if you could average 15 to 20 miles a day walking, that's a pretty good walk, isn't it? It would take you at least four to five days to make that journey. But most Bible scholars, uh, they theorize that it probably took about a week to go that 85 miles in Mary's condition. So that means at a very, very minimum, you know, four or five nights camping out under the stars, hoping it's not raining There's no Holiday Inn, there's no Motel 6 keeping the lights on, nothing. You know, after a long 15 to 20 mile trek that day, they weren't going to end up in beds that had nice clean sheets. There were no restaurants to stop and eat at. It was just two people and a donkey, maybe a donkey. They finally arrive in Bethlehem, and then comes some more complications. First of all, just finding a room, right? 
everybody else, or many, many people, were headed back to Bethlehem as well. And most of those people probably made a lot better time than Mary and Joseph. So Mary and Joseph shows up and there's no rooms to be found, right? It is interesting, though, that there were some scrolls uncovered, very, very rare, that, that describes that Joseph went into the inn and he gave it his best shot to try to get a room. You don't see this recorded a lot of places. But apparently he went in, he said, I'd like a room. Their innkeeper was a little gruff. He said, I ain't got no rooms. He says, what do you mean you ain't got no rooms? The guy said, I'm telling you, I got no rooms. And Joseph said, you mean to tell me that if Caesar Augustus himself walked through that door, you wouldn't have a room? And the guy said, look, pal, if Caesar Augustus comes through that door, I'll get him a room. And Joseph said, well, fantastic, because I happen to know for a fact he's not coming, so I'll take that room. But apparently it still didn't work. How many of you are glad you came to church today? You'd never heard that story before. <laughs> I don't know if it's true. I'm just telling you. I just... <clears throat> so there's a lot of complications here, right? Mary's pregnancy, complication from traveling that distance, complications trying to find a room. But in the midst of all that, there was celebration as well. Anytime a baby's born, there's a certain level of celebration, right? Even if conditions are, are uh, rendering some embarrassment or shame because people are assuming things that aren't true. When there's a baby born, uh, a baby is born, there is cause for celebration. And on the night Jesus was born, it started out as a very private celebration. It was just Mary and Joseph. They knew something that no one else in the world knew. And it was, without a doubt, the greatest secret in the entire history of mankind. And just two people knew that for a while. They knew that their baby was God's own son and that this birth was an absolute miracle. Amen? <clears throat> but we know it's not a secret for very long. And the celebration begins to spread, doesn't it? Angels speak to a group of shepherds out in the fields on the edge of town. They announce that a Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. And so the shepherds come running into town to see this newfound Savior. I have to guess that there might have been some other passers-by that, that might have stopped to look into this manger area. The Bible doesn't mention anything about that, but you have to think the sounds of a woman giving birth might attract just a little bit of attention. But who knows? Christmas should first and foremost always be about the celebration that Christ is born. Amen? But it is equally important that He be born in all of our hearts. Because without that, you're never, without, without him being born in your heart, you're never going to uh, really find the real reason to celebrate Christmas in the first place. It's all about him. It has to be about him. So there were complications. There were celebrations. It was quite a night, to say the least. There was a Christmas play that was written several years ago, and 
the play asked this question. What did Joseph do the day after Jesus was born? I would imagine that the day that Jesus was born, that Joseph, he did everything he could to try and make Mary as comfortable as she could and the baby Jesus. But what about, what happened the next day? So in this play, since Joseph was a carpenter by trade, the next day he's building this crib for Jesus and he's thinking back on the night before and all of the incredible celebration of how Jesus was welcomed into this world. <clears throat> and as he's building this crib and thinking to himself, he's thinking, you know, if they treated Jesus like that when he's just born, how are they going to treat him when they find out he's the son of God? And right then, as Joseph is speaking these words, all the lights go out and all you hear is his hammer striking the wood. The answer to his question was in that very sound, wasn't it? So those are the elements of the story. And how many of you have noticed that every year that this, as this story gets told, there's a greater and greater avoidance of using the name of Christ during Christmas season? You know, more often than not these days, people in businesses are saying, you know, well, ha happy holidays, whatever holiday that is that you, you know, that you may recognize. Happy holidays, nice, neat, very politically correct, right? Anybody tired of political correctness other than me? Man, something that will suit whatever holiday that everyone uh, wishes to recognize or not recognize, whatever the case may be. But the truth is this, and will always be this, it's not just any holiday. It is Christmas. It's the birthday of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we celebrate him coming into this world to be our Savior. God in human form. Man, just think about it. It is really mind-boggling the more you dwell and contemplate that. God in human form. Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we've reviewed these elements of the story. This morning I want us to focus on the different responses that we see in this story. As I read through it, I find five different responses to this Christmas story, and I think you will probably find that you yourself will fit into at least one of these categories of response, maybe more than one. But the five basic characters involved in this Christmas story, one is the innkeeper, the shepherds, Herod, the Pharisees, and the wise men. And of course, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. But I'm talking about those other than Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. It's the innkeeper, the shepherds, Herod, Pharisees, and the wise men. And I want us to look at the, at, at the way they responded in this incredible story. Let's first look at the innkeeper, all right? First of all, does anybody here actually know how many times the innkeeper is mentioned in the Bible? Zero. Zero times. The truth is that no one knows for sure if there was an innkeeper. However, it just makes sense, and we can only assume there was an innkeeper because there was an inn. 
Somebody had to be running things, right? Somebody had to be there to inform Mary and Joseph that there were no rooms available. So we can assume there was, in fact, an innkeeper. But who was this innkeeper and what was he like? I'm telling you, that is a $1,000 question right there. It really depends on whose sermon you're listening to. Because sometimes he's a hero and sometimes he's a villain. It just depends on the sermon, doesn't it? He's either a very mean-spirited, grumpy old man who basically slams the door in Mary and Joseph's face, or he's this kind-hearted, gentle, uh, benevolent guy who does his absolute best to at least provide a roof over their heads. Or maybe it's just somewhere in between. We don't really know. I don't know if he was a hero or a villain, but there's a good chance that I believe his response to this Christmas scenario was a response of preoccupation. This dude was preoccupied. I'm going to guess that, that running this inn in this sleepy little town, man, this guy got slammed, and he wasn't used to that. I mean, with all these people flooding into town, trying to get a room at the inn, I mean, I'm just telling you, this dude was busy as a one-legged cat in a sandbox. That's busy. I apologize to all you cat lovers. It just that conjures up a funny image in my mind. But anyway, this might have been the first time that this little inn had ever had to put up the no vacancy sign. I mean, this, this guy had to be. He was hitting and getting. He's trying to take care of all these guests. He's trying to meet their needs. Because after all, this innkeeper, man, this, this was a big night. This night was going to be about making some serious dough, right? Boy, does that ring true today? People getting a little preoccupied with making a little dough. The malls open early. They close late. Everybody's so busy shopping. There are probably more people in malls this weekend than there are in churches. The innkeeper response to this day is a very easy trap to fall into, isn't it? I mean, we can get so busy, we can get so preoccupied with things that Jesus just kind of gets put on the back burner. Even though it's his birthday, we're supposed to be celebrating, right? So I challenge us this morning to take time and just really refocus. Make sure that God is first and foremost in your life and in this Christmas season. Don't be preoccupied. So the first response was preoccupation. The second response is the response of the shepherds. They felt highly privileged. You know, the shepherds were the lowest of the low class in that society. They were usually the rejects of society. Their job was dirty, and, and these guys probably stunk to high heaven. And you know, here we are, thousands, a couple thousand years later, just a month ago, Pastor Todd and uh, uh, four of us were Brian and... Uh, Steve, I'm 61. It takes a while for the neurons to connect. You know, we're traveling in this, 
in this little van out into the countryside of Romania. And to this day, there, on hills, you'd see these big flocks of sheep, and you'd see one guy out there with them, the shepherd. And sometimes as traveling down these roads, we, they, there might be a, a big old herd of sheep, and that shepherd, a couple times they were right, right alongside the road, and we got a good look at them. I did not roll down the window, but I'm telling you right now, I'll bet they smelled high heaven. They were dirty, they had ragged clothes, and they slept outside every night with these sheep. I mean, there's no place to shower, there's no place to clean up. These guys were rough looking. So not much has changed in some parts of this world in 2,000 years. The shepherds were the lowest of the low class of society. Yet God reached past all of these barriers of society, and he says to the shepherds, I want you guys to be the very first to know that in the city of David, a Savior has been born. That was the biggest announcement in the history of mankind. And who received it first? The shepherds. The lowest of the low. All of a sudden, these men that society thought amounted to nothing became very, very great men of privilege. God said, you guys are first. You get to see and worship the King of Kings. And this morning, it rings true that all of us are people of great privilege. You know, we're not here this morning because we're so smart we figured out all the prophecies. That's not why we're here. We're not here because we've done such incredible things for God. We're probably here, most of us, because we were born in the United States of America, the right country, at the right time, and we have been privileged to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a privilege. A lot of us are probably here today because we were privileged to have parents who told us about Jesus, who raised us up in church and threatened us with bodily harm if we did not get out of bed to get ready for church. That's why a lot of us are here this morning. Is my mom here? <laughs> Tell you, y'all think she was sweet. Man, she was scary sometimes. Right? So you will get out of bed. You know, it's once in a while I'd try to say, oh, mom, I'm not feeling good. I think I'm sick. That never worked. Oh, you're sick. Well, then church is just the place you need to be. Now get out of it. I mean, none of that ever worked. Whatever the reason we're here, the bottom line is we're all here because we are greatly privileged. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you don't even realize that. You need to. You're here because you are incredibly privileged today. Just like shepherds, I hope that everyone realizes this incredible privilege that God offers us. The third response is the response of Herod. Herod's response was one of fear and paranoia. In fact, Herod was so paranoid about losing his throne that eventually he killed three of his own sons and even his favorite wife. Which bodes the question, how do you treat those less favorite wives, right? I don't know. I didn't hear that part of the story. But when these wise men came asking this question, where is 
the newborn king, man, he freaked out. Herod immediately called for his, the, the cream of the crop of his religious leaders. And he, and he brings them in the room. He says, do any of you guys know anything about some newborn king? And without hesitation, these guys, oh, yeah, the prophets, yeah, they've, it's been prophesied for hundreds of years. He'll be born in Bethlehem. You know how far away Bethlehem was? Four miles. Herod tells these wise men, is what we call them now, to go and look for baby Jesus. And, and, and he says, and by the way, when you find him, come back to me. Let me know where he's at so I can go and worship him too. And we all know that story. We know that Herod didn't want to worship Jesus. Herod wanted to kill Jesus. Because Herod's response was complete fear and paranoia and even a certain level of intimidation. I think that people today still respond to Jesus with a certain level of fear and intimidation. I think sometimes people have the thought, you know, if I really make Jesus the Lord of my life and I really strive to serve him, I might have to give up some things in life that I kind of like. You know, he might want me to serve, uh, maybe just completely sever some relationships with people I have, or even worse, he might want to change my whole view about possessions and money. He'll probably want me to be a lot more generous than I have been. I, I just don't know if I'm ready for all this. And I'm telling you what, that response of King Herod, that response of fear and paranoia and intimidation, that I think is the number one reason that keeps people from accepting Christ into their life. People love the thought of going to heaven. People hate the thought of having to change or give up anything in their life. And that is going to keep more people out of heaven than anything else. 2,000 years later, people still respond like Herod. They don't, they don't want Jesus to have to actually change any part of their life. The fourth response is the response of the Pharisees. This is the response that really I find the most incredible. Their response was a response of pride. This is my opinion. You can take it or leave it. I think their response was all about pride. Because I've always thought it was interesting that when Herod asked them, does you guys know anything about this newborn king? They instantly they knew the correct answer. They didn't even have to think about it. They said, oh yeah, he's going to be born just right over here in Bethlehem. It's been prophesied for hundreds of years. They knew the answer right off the bat, but no way were they going to go to Bethlehem to see this newborn king. Four miles away. Here's why I think it was all about pride. If they had acted interested and gone with these wise men, then, then simply by default, they would have been admitting that the wise men actually knew more than they did about the coming of the Messiah. They, could, they weren't going to stand for that. Then they would have had to admit that God shared this huge Huge, the biggest news that had ever been heard, that God actually shared that news with someone 
other than themselves because they were so high and mighty and they knew everything. They figured if anything that big was going to happen, God would surely have to tell them first because they're so important. You know, sometimes today people still respond to Christmas like the Pharisees did. You know, we can be such proud people and we, we have so much stuff and we have so many resources. It's hard for us to admit that we have any real need for God or anyone else for that matter. You know, we're handling things pretty good on our own. We've got food to eat. Yes, I can prove that. We've got food to eat, we've got cars, we've got our houses, we've got maybe a little money in the bank, and even if we don't have a little money in the bank, we've got our credit cards, and we're doing all right, just by ourselves, right? We don't really need help from God or anybody else. That's pride. It's the same response as the Pharisees. But the Bible warns us that pride always comes before a, a fall. And as long as we're all caught up in our pride, thinking that we can handle everything ourselves, we're never going to understand and really appreciate the miracle of Christmas. We have to get rid of the pride. The final response was the greatest one. The response of the wise men. And I've said this before, how many times in the Bible are they referred to as wise men? None. We call them wise because they were all about seeking God. Their response was a response of perception. They perceived, they had this great perception. They lived hundreds of miles away from Bethlehem. Bible scholars believe at a minimum 500 miles, but uh, potentially up to 1,000 miles. But we already talked about how tough a trip 85 miles would be, right? Can you imagine somewhere between 500 and 1,000 miles? And they didn't even get a visit from an angel. They didn't get firsthand announcements. But these guys, they were men of science, and they studied the stars, and scientists who study stars, they know one thing. Stars just don't pop up out of nowhere all of a sudden. Because the images we're seeing, that light originated hundreds of years ago, and we're seeing it now. You can Google it, study it. It's very deep. But these guys know, men of science know, hey, a star just doesn't all of a sudden pop up out of nowhere. That doesn't happen. But it did happen there, didn't it? And they knew of the prophecies of the coming Messiah. And so when they saw this new star that showed up out of nowhere, immediately they perceived that the Messiah has surely been born. And they began their journey seeking him. That's why they were wise. That's where it comes from. And we know they finally find him. Bible scholars agree that it, it could have been as much as two years later. We don't know for sure. That was a long journey. But they worshiped him. They brought him gifts. 
That's the response that God wants to see in all of us. We study God's word. We weigh the evidence and then we begin to seek him in our life. I mean, if you'll just weigh out all the evidence, you have to come to the realization of just how much God really loves us and how true this story is. There was a woman named Margaret Brown. Does that name ring a bell with anybody? How about her nickname after the Titanic sank, the unsinkable Molly Brown? And now you know the rest of the story. Margaret Brown, the unsinkable Molly Brown, who survived the sinking of the Titanic, she had a great quote about Christmas. She said, and I quote, Christmas is love tugging men's hearts back to God with the powerful grip of a tiny baby's hand reaching out from a bed of straw. I think that's an interesting quote. A powerful grip. When you hear the words powerful grip, does a baby's hand pop into your mind immediately? Well, it did with her. But it does ring true. Have you ever put your finger in a tiny baby's hand and you're just, you go to pull it away and doggone, this kid's strong. Man. You're just amazed at how strong that tiny little grip is, right? They've got an amazing grip for such tiny little hands. And here we are, a little over 2,000 years later, this little hand is still reaching out today from that bed of straw, so to speak, just trying to get a grip on our hearts. My heart, your heart, everybody. But he's not going to grab a hold until you first respond and put out your hand. He won't grab a hold until you decide to respond like the wise men and you begin a journey seeking him. But here's the good news, and I end with this this morning. My lands, it's quarter after 11. We're going to be there before any of the Baptists get to the restaurant this morning. We are just going to flat clean their clock today. My wife's giving me a look. I'm going to act like I don't even see her, and I'm just going to keep going on right here, right now. I'm going to hear about this later, though. I'm telling you, I, mean, I have nothing against the Baptists. I was just, the filter doesn't work all the time, you know. It's, Things pop in and out they come. The good news this morning is this. You can meet your Lord and Savior right here at these altars this morning. Man, that, that little hand, that hand is still reaching out, wanting you to reach out and just grab a hold of it today. What a beautiful, what a beautiful day it would be to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You'd remember it the rest of your life. It was the Sunday before Christmas in 2019. So he's as real today as he was that first Christmas night. When the shepherds came, they saw him lying in that manger. Man, he's just as real today, and he's still reaching out for each and every one of us. Amen? You have been listening to CT Church in San Antonio, Texas. This recording was presented in the context of our Sunday service. For more information, please visit us at ctagsa.com connect with us on Facebook or call us at 210-657-3578.